Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Well, James, how are you doing today? I'm good, Will. Thank you so much for having me. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on. I, I really appreciate it. Um, do you mind giving us a brief bio and some of the big ideas you're interested in? Sure, sure. Um, let's see. So by training, I'm a chemist and materials engineer. Um, I've been into startups since uh, I actually spun out my undergraduate research thesis at 21 and in my first startup. Nice. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, at the time, I didn't realize what the undertaking would be. So, so ignorance happened to play well in my favor. Um, we were uh, printing solar panels. Oh, cool. And yeah, that, that sounds really sexy. It, it sounds way sexier than it actually is. Um, but I, I, uh, I was working on a project in my undergrad where uh, f- the, the research advisor I was working under had developed a new set of dyes. Um, it's similar to the dyes you put into clothes uh, where they absorb certain kinds of light. So, you know, blue, green, yellow, red, et cetera. Um, but they tune these dyes in a way to make them semiconducting. And the vision was that these dyes, because they were carbon-based, um, could be in the same way that a printer prints dyes for a page of paper. You could put these dyes into a printer as well and print those panels. Oh, cool. Um, it turns out that me and the research uh, professor had two different visions on how the research should go. He was very much interested in, in expanding the academic school of thought, whereas I couldn't let go of the potential future vision of seeing the world um, printed in solar panels. So like yeah. just coded the entire, I, I believe at the time, this is in 2016 or 2015, um, if you could cover the state of Rhode, I- Rhode Island in solar panels, uh, you'd be able to provide enough energy for everyone in the United States and some. Oh, nice. So, it doesn't take a lot of square area, right? And so, yeah. so once I saw that, I couldn't like uh, let go of the idea. Um, we ended up working with a set of materials called perovskites. Um, I went to school at RIT. It turns out there was a bunch of Kodak professors there, so you know they helped us work through um, getting into contact with Kodak, figuring out how oh, we could cool. develop all this. And then, uh, as as all great technologies come to bear, you had to figure out what the economic forces look like, right? Um, so I had a big uh, awakening about what business even means and, and why it's important. You know, I, I understood like, yeah, your, your costs have to be less than what you make, yeah. um, grab economic things, whatnot. Uh, but it turns out that if you look at the economics of, of the solar industry, the panel, the thing that absorbs the light yeah. makes up about 5% of the cost of installing a solar panel on a roof, on a farm, anywhere. Really? 60% of the cost comes from the labor of installation and the certification of the install. Oh, no way. Yeah. So it's like so permitting that, and things like that? Exactly, exactly. So so the land that you're going to build on. So so one, one thing a lot of people don't consider is the fact that um, you're working with high voltage uh, materials. And so uh-huh. you need those things to be installed at a very tight spec. Like you can imagine if a solar cells uh, installed on even your house aren't properly insulated from the rain, like you could burn down that house. 
you know? Oh God. You, you don't want these things casually installed. You need to make sure that they're done to a certain grade with a certain level of specialization. People go to school, like specialized training for these kinds of things. And so gotcha. obviously the, the specialization there, the, the permitting, so on and so forth, um, makes it such that it's, it's actually a, a fairly large limiting factor um, in solar. And so the vision that we had of coding the world in solar panels is like, okay, great, we can do that. But it turns out that um, what's holding the world back is not the ability to produce panels, but the cost of installing them. Oh, wow. And so I, yeah, I, once I realized that fact and, and understood that, you know, as, as incredible of an innovation as, as we, we had been commercializing, even if it was to get to the absolute zenith of its capacity, where we could produce solar panels that, you know, pennies on the dollar of what silicon could. So we yeah. let's just say we brought that 5% down to zero, it still wouldn't move the needle on fixing climate change. Gotcha. And that's when I was like, well, uh, good first shot on goal. All right, like on to the next one. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. So I, I like thinking a lot about, about energy generation, about power, about distribution there. Um, I, I really like, you know, all the cutting edge research you're seeing on fusion, uh, like Commonwealth, General Fusion, so on and so forth. Um, and then in, in my second uh, startup, we were doing bio extractions and um, we, we, we did a lot of iteration. We went through Y Combinator for this one. Uh, we nice. started off in the coffee space, um, transitioned from coffee to cannabis extraction because cannabis is way more profitable, right? So high profitability, whereas solar panels, very low profitability, right. kind of learned my lesson. Um, and then what, what I uh, quickly learned was that there was a call to do better things, to, to take my talents and put them to better use than to extracting cannabis. I just, yeah. I felt like I had a higher calling in life than right. being a drug dealer. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I, I, we, we kind of iterated our way through that. Um, we, we realized people were using cannabis to put themselves to sleep, did a sleep coaching business for about a year. And ultimately I fell out of love with that and, and realized that I was, again, I was in the services business. I was in the software business, but really my background is in chemistry. It's in materials. Yeah. I love the physical world of atoms. And that's what I wanted to, to help bring to life. So uh, I co-founded the, the Deep Tech Fellowship at OnDeck with my partner, Abhijit, to help other people find their groove, their niche of bringing their atomic innovations uh, to the real world. So that was, that was my arc. And now the thing that I'm thinking about is how can we unlock more laboratory innovation um, to actually be commercial real world uh, products that help people and businesses on an everyday. I, I really love that. And it, it seems like, you know, deep tech and, and building things in the real world is especially challenging versus, you know, software, mm. you know, you can build a software business for like hundred K, you know, yeah. get it off the ground. But man, like yep. the real world, there's all like, you know, it's like you, you're increasing the number of factors you have to worry about so much like regulatory challenges, like you described with Massive. you know solar panels, Massive. you know, yeah. it, it almost seems like you, you want to dissuade people from trying to go after this. Like, it's like, it's very difficult. You know, how do you, you know, how do you keep, keep the faith and like, I, cause it's obviously, it's very, very important. Probably that's the answer, right? It's super important that we actually have physical innovation. Um, but, but yeah, how do you coach founders through that? And maybe that's too general a question, but um, I, I'm curious how you think about that. I, I think faith is actually an interesting question of like, because to, to me, that applies that concept. How do you know to keep building anything? It, it's sort of, right. in my opinion, a little bit more general. It, it doesn't just apply to deep tech. And I think what you're scratching at is true in that the the cost of working in deep tech is higher. Or, or And so in an, an effect, your conviction for what you're working on needs to be that much higher. So you even see this. I, I think um, it's starting to change now but over definitely the past decade, if not two, 
uh, you can see that even venture capitalists also dissuaded folks from working on things that are hardware oriented, that yeah. are deep tech oriented. I, I think part of why Kickstarter came about and became such a commercial success is because investors were afraid to touch things in the wouldn't hardware. Touch, yeah, wouldn't space. touch hardware. Absolutely. If it, if it doesn't, um, Pebble doesn't work. You know, there's all these like stories like that. Yeah, exactly. Even though the, the I think Pebble was what the most funded Kickstarter yeah. at, up until that time, right? Crazy. Um, so yeah, how, how do you keep the faith? I, I think part of that is um, by removing the, well, how, how would I put this? Founders are the kinds of people who have like a vision for what the world could be. Yeah. And it's their job to crawl through the mud, to crawl through whatever barriers are going in their way to manifest that future. Yeah. And, and I, think, I think what I find is most important is to just remind the people who are building the future to not listen to the people telling them that they're wrong. It's nice. so, so easy to criticize and to, to come up with reasons why something shouldn't work. Right. And, and I think that that, that's, that kind of a check is useful when done in a, in a way to say, okay, but have you thought about this other way? Like, you gotcha. know, I think the direction you're going down may not be useful or, or you might run into some technical issues, um, but there might be this other route Whereas like traditionally, especially if you see it on social media, a lot of people are like, oh, this is a stupid idea. Like, why would you do this? The world's bad enough as it is. Like, right. we don't need to extend life exactly. right, as an example. And so, so it becomes like, a, like just, just tell the, the folks that are building the future to ignore the naysayers and, and remind them as well that when they make silly mistakes, when they make you know, first time founder mistakes, yeah. that those are the kinds of things that, that everyone in their first shot does because they're fresh. So right. don't beat yourself up and then don't listen to the naysayers is the TLDR. Gotcha. And, and, you know, how do you, how do you determine who can give you good feedback and who is just going to huh. like, you know what I mean? Cause this seems like, you know, it's a real difficult challenge and you want to try and think through these things as best as you can. Um, and, and you want to like get good feedback from people, but you know, at the same time, you do need to like be singularly focused on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you, you touch on a few things there. I, and at, at the last point, I think focus is actually the most potent uh, wedge that founders have to displace um, the present from the future that they're trying to manifest. So uh, if, if you think about it, like um, the, the tip of a missile is an example, it's what's breaking or a rocket, what have you, it, it's breaking through the resistance of the air and whatnot, and literally pressing it aside for you to, to penetrate through and, and work through. Um, and so, so that, that tip, that edge is, is where focus is most important. Um, because if not, you, then you have sort of like a dull tip and you're not really making any headway on one specific direction. Um, but in terms of where to get feedback, I, I think that that's actually a harder question to answer than it might sound because like you could list a bunch of characteristics and say like, Oh, you know, look for this. Don't look for that. Or these are the good things. These are the bad things. Yeah. Um, but in a, in a day like, or modern day, like 2021, where information is so abundant, right? YouTube is incredible. Google's amazing. Wikipedia has more stuff than you can read in a lifetime. I actually, I wonder what the stat is. How many lifetimes would it take to read all of it? Yeah. <laughs> it's a great question. It's got, <laughs> it's gotta be a lot, right? Anyways. Um, the, the specific knowledge that comes through experience are the kinds of things that are differentiated from what you could read in a textbook, what you can get in a classroom, what you can get on YouTube. And so to that avail, uh, Naval actually has a really great um, nugget on this where it's like unique knowledge is what's valuable in the modern day. 
Um, uh-huh. and, and that's what things get paid. People get paid to like transfer over to you. So, so I would say people who have done it before, either things that are, uh, in a similar industry as you at a cutting edge or who have gone through the process of going from zero to one, who have gone from uh, literally bootstrapping or creating from scratch anything. Ideally, it would be a business if you're interested in business. And even more ideally, it'd be in the same industry that you're in. But oftentimes you can talk to someone who made you know, a, a small startup in software and they can give you advice, um, better advice, I would say, than, than some critic on Twitter about what you should be doing, what you shouldn't be doing, common mistakes, like raising too much money, hiring right. people too quickly, uh, not being focused is another common mistake. And that, that's across any any space, any industry. Yeah, that, that, I, I really like that. I really like that. And I'm curious, what do you look for? You know, you guys just launched ODX, which is super cool, you know, kind of a big fund um, to invest yeah. in a lot of people within the fellowship. And I want to talk about the fellowship too here in a little bit. Sure, um, let's do it. How do, how do you think about selecting founders um you know what do you look for do you look for technical aptitude do you look for you know idea fit i i'm assuming it's just some mishmash of all that and it's probably unique each time right <laughs> you know it's not like one thing yeah well the, the value prop of odx was to fund founders or people that have the potential to be founders earlier than anyone else nice we want to take bets on folks before other people have the conviction that this is someone who is talented, who can execute, who has what it takes. And the best way to do that is to recognize or to pattern match in uh, what your experiences have been as a founder. So, right, like, like I'm lucky or experienced in that I've done two startups. Um, Abhijit has been involved in a number of startups. Uh, Ashwin, another program partner at OnDeck, Deep Tech. Also, um, the, the ODX team has a lot of folks that, that have built startups and also invested in startups. So we use heuristics like um, the velocity of execution. I think that's a really, really great example. So it's like, how many things have you been able to accomplish towards your focus point um, since you first had the the idea? Um, I I I think another uh, important factor is uh, why someone wants to do this. Now more than ever, right? And you see this a lot in Web3 and crypto. There's the opportunity to speculate on right. NFTs, on new coins, projects, so on and so forth. And so if, if your desire is to, to become wealthy, I actually think that, that startups aren't the most efficient way to do that. Um, and and there's, there's nothing wrong necessarily in wanting to be wealthy, but if, if that's your primary goal, if, if that's what wakes you up in the morning, I, I think a startup is actually an inefficient way to acquire that, that vision, that dream. Right, right. Um, so why people are doing it matters a lot as well. And uh, teasing that out, is, is actually harder than it might seem because sometimes people don't even recognize their own motivations. And so through, through conversation, through, you know, the, the experiences they've had, the choices they've made, you can start to tease those things out. So yeah, it's, it's complicated, but at the end of the day, you're betting on a person right? at the early stages, right? Yeah. So if, if you look at funding at the series, a level series, B level, so on and so forth, you look at the execution of the team, um, the company, their their metrics, their MRR, their ARR. For those yeah. that don't know, that's mon- uh, monthly recurring revenue and annually recurring revenue. Um, whereas in the beginning, right at the pre-seed stage, you don't have those data points. Oftentimes, especially in the deep tech space, you don't have any revenue. There's none right. of that to judge. So you have to be a good judge of character. You have to be a good judge of the person. And like anything else in this space, it's very risky. It's oftentimes we're wrong. Um, but we are here to, to be in the business of supporting people who otherwise never would have been able to get into business. Um, 
because they were slept on. They didn't go to the right university. They didn't have the right credentials. Um, and that, that makes me really, really happy as someone who, you know, also didn't go to MIT or Harvard or Stanford to yeah. be in business, to have gotten into a Y Combinator, to be building a community like this. To me, it's really important to be able to reach out and give that opportunity to folks who otherwise didn't have that privilege and didn't get the chance to go to those universities, because those folks are often just as hardworking, just as intelligent, just as resourceful as anyone else at an Ivy League school. When you're looking at, at people and, you know, you're, and you're trying to evaluate founders, you know, how do you think about finding that $20 bill on the sidewalk? You know, is it, is it valuing like substance over status? Like, you know, it, you know, this person has actually done a lot. They may not have, you know, gone to MIT, but they've got like, you know, they've actually done a lot of these things. Like, like how do you, and, and is it just unique every time for each person? So I, I think you're scratching at something that's, um, definitely echoing its way through the societal fabric, which is how important is the status symbols that you carry? Um, like how valuable is that uh, multi-hundred thousand dollar piece of paper and the, the education that it symbolically represents versus uh, a list of your accomplishments? And I, I think yeah. that there's a diverse set of camps here. Some people that are extreme one way, extreme another way in between, and then the full spectrum um, across. My take is it's, now more important than ever to show that you can do the thing that you are passionate about. It's, it's more important to show that you're the kind of person that can persevere through adversity and that can break down walls because the future is unfortunately mostly uncertain. There's an interesting quote I, I, that I like that, that talks about how entrepreneurs have a certain vision of a certain part of the future that they feel like is certain. And it's their job to manifest that, to will that future into reality. Yeah. And so they have you know, a specific imagination about what the future can look like, what it, what it should look like. And they're working to build that into, uh, into reality. But across the whole, we don't know how tomorrow, next year, the next decade, the next century will look. And so the ability to problem solve abstract problems, to create resources when you didn't have any, to turn nothing into something, uh, that, that is generally a good sign of someone who knows how to get things done, even when they don't have everything that they might necessarily need. And that is a phenomenal precursor um, or, or identifying factor for someone that would make a good entrepreneur, a good founder. And you can't necessarily accredite that thing. There's no place you can go to, to to get a stamp of approval that says that. It's shown through the efforts that you've put in and the consequences of those efforts. And so I, I like to think that, especially if you're, as an example, a software person, your yeah. portfolio goes way farther than your uh, degree. So if, if you have a PhD from Stanford, um, that's good, but show me your Git repo where you have thousands of, of stars and um, you know, millions of, of views or uses, that right. shows way more that you actually know how to implement the knowledge that you supposedly would have gained in a university setting. So I, I'm absolutely with the camp that um, what you've done, the proof of your work matters way more than the status of the thing that you come from. Um, but I, I think you still have to acknowledge that in this day and age, a lot of people are lazily just looking for ways to just say, oh, this seems like a good pick. Cool. I'm not going right. to think about it moving on to the next one. Yeah. And that's where these status uh, style emblems come into play and, and where you find them to be useful. Uh, but for the folks that are working at the very, very cutting edge, 
uh, they value more your grit and your tenacity and your right. ability to get things done. So if, if you are in the process of trying to change the world, in a way, it's easier for you to not go to school and to instead prove that you can execute. Right. I think um, I, I'm, I'm struggling to remember who said this, but the, the most, the smartest um, decision you could have made last year would at the, like at the beginning of COVID yeah. would be to get into Stanford, uh, start on the first day and then drop out before tuition was supposed to be collected. Right. And so that way you have the Stanford dropout, but you save all the time to execute yeah, like exactly. you would have anyways. So you have both the credential and the time to execute and to get stuff done and kind of live the best of both worlds. I love that. I love that. Yeah. yeah. It's a little, ha- little hack. <laughs> that would be a great hack. And I recommend that to anybody who gets into Stanford. Yeah. Give it a try. That's <laughs> um, listening. James, you know, you mentioned something earlier. It was velocity of execution. Um, yeah. I, I want you to talk about that a little bit more. And I, I just, I, I want to harp on this a little bit because I think it's something people can control. So I think that that's really sure. good. You know, you can't, there's Absolutely. things you can't control, but you can control velocity of execution. And something I've noticed, you know, I've recorded about 80 episodes so far. Um, and the, the correlation between how successful someone has been and how fast they get back to me. And you did a great job with this. You got back really fast. Um, it, it's, it's a really weird thing I've noticed. So Balaji, the founder of Visa, got back to me within like 10 minutes, you know, answered no their way. email. Yes, it's very, very weird. That's incredible. You know, you got back to me really fast. There's a lot of, um, and, and so I think like that is a metric of, of perhaps judging people it is an interesting one. And of course, you know, things happen. You can't always get back to people fast, but it's just, it's just something I've noticed. So velocity of execution. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. I, I find it really interesting that uh, I remember actually Patrick Collison, I want to say. No, it was Paul Graham commenting on Patrick Collison's um, speed of reply echoes your sentiment here as well. I, th- I think that's really interesting. Uh, as, as a devil's advocate case, you know, maybe someone is on vacation or doing a dope oh, yeah, fast yeah, so they don't have, have access to their electronics. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Um, so, so I say that just for so the listeners, like, because I, I know if I got that advice at 16, I'd be like, all right, I'm always staring at my email, exactly. like waiting for the next doing, opportunity doing to come in. Right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just yeah. like looking at me like, cool, I got it back in 15 microseconds. Like, exactly. I'm good. They're going to think I'm amazing. Um, so, yeah, don't take that too literally. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and actually, to, to that point, I remember Naval has a, a point where he makes it a case to not do coffee because he's too busy, you know, thinking or, or yeah. kind of working through other, other processes. So, you know, teach their own. Anyways, velocity of execution. That was the question. Um, I think that oh, I, I want to default to something that, that Elon Musk really inspired in me when I, or the first time I heard it was from Elon, which was uh, if you have a better than average, so greater than 50%, um, rate of being correct on the experiments or the executions that you make, then you should make as many of them as possible because you multiply Uh. or the aggregate the results of being more often than not correct. Um, Because this reminds me as well of of a James Clear point where there's a a graph that shows basically if you get 1% better every day versus 1% worse every day, after a year, um, 0.99 brought to 365 goes basically near to one. And then 1.01 brought to the 365th power goes to some something in the hundreds. So it, it goes to show basically how the, the effect of compounding over time has really, really strong benefit. And uh, Sam Altman also talks about the fact that you are, humans, I should say, in general, have a hard time understanding the strength 
and the value of exponential compounding curves. So execution velocity leverages the same mathematical principles, which is every time you execute, in theory, you should learn something. And again, if, if you're making better than average decisions, um, then you are learning because you're learning something from your executions. Then every time you execute, presumably you're going to get further and further and further um, to toward, I should say, whatever your goal is. And so the, the difference between you working 40 hours a week and uh, you working 100 hours a week is you will get done in one year working 100 hours a week what it takes someone else two and a half years to get done. Now, I will say on the flip side of that, it is, I don't want to say impossible, but extraordinarily difficult to maintain that clip of execution at 100 hours a week for an entire year and for that matter, for decades. So keep in mind that you you have to factor in the human accountability aspect there, right? The fact that that we are not machines. Um, However, the, the more experimentation you can do, the more you get to uncover about what your unknowns are. And the sooner you get to figure out, okay, is this thing that I believed right or wrong? And then what can I do as a consequence of being right or wrong? It kind of allows you to explore the, the decision tree matrix with increased velocity. And because we know, right, that the future is still uncertain, um, you can't know until you go and you try that experiment. If, if, if everything was completely known, then there'd be no reason to. You could just kind of like magically preordain exactly what would be. And you just need to do exactly the right one thing in order to have that future manifest. Right. But because it's unknown, because we cannot tell exactly what will happen tomorrow, next year, next decade, you have to iterate your way and experiment your way through it. And that's why, to come back to an original point, having someone who's done that, who's had to go through decision matrix yeah. uh, decisions before, helps you figure out what am I doing right? What am I doing wrong? What should I get better at? Which, what am I doing that I shouldn't? Um, so that specific unique knowledge helps in that like future forecasting, but no amount of expertise can outweigh the importance of executing. And so that's why it's the velocity of execution, not the velocity of thinking as an Got example. It. Got it. Got it. And you know, when you're first getting started or you're thinking about getting started and actually launching something, you know, is there a checklist you go through or you would recommend people <laughs> to go through or like, you know, is it just like you should spend a lot of time thinking about it, evaluating it, you know, like, I, I, don't, I don't know. Oh God. So th- this is kind of an interesting one. Um, I, I would say it, <laughs> I, I, I feel like I'm saying it depends so often. So well, I, I want to say something different. It very well may depend. <laughs> so, you know, like, <laughs> uh, different strokes for different folks. Maybe, exactly. maybe that's the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Better use case here. Um, if, so if you look at someone like Elon Musk, it doesn't take him very long to decide he's going to do something. He just right. decides one day, I'm going to dig tunnels underneath LA and starts the boring company. It's time. Or I'm going to merge computers slash AI with humans and start Neuralink. Yeah. That's it. Uh, there are other folks who it takes them decades of, you know, inner work and working through whatever it is that that's holding them back. I in some cases it's adversity from, you know, a happenstance perspective, you weren't born in the right country or right. to the right family, so on and so forth. In other cases, it's it's that you didn't find the need or the, the drive to stoke that flame until later in life, that conviction, let's say. So for other people, it takes them decades to, to kind of have that level of conviction to say like, okay, I'm going to go all in on a project and see yeah. if, if I can build something, if I can manifest something worth doing. But for my personal self, uh, I think it's, it's important to figure out 
why I'm doing what I'm doing. Because at the end of the day, time is our most valuable and limited asset, right? You can always make more money. Uh, right. You can always try, try, you know, something else, but yeah. you, you can't get back the time that you've invested. And so being completely honest with myself about my uh, intention here is, is really, really important. And that can be again, harder than it sounds because we can easily deceive ourselves right. where what, what starts off as, as shiny object syndrome gets rationalized to be like, Oh, I just want to see if there's a cool opportunity here, which right. turns out to be like, I've already invested too much time into this that I feel like I have to keep going. It's this gambler's fallacy of, well, eventually it'll turn out red, even right. if it's just continue to be black. And it turns out that that doesn't necessarily mean anything. It doesn't have to. Yeah. Um, statistics can can mess with you uh, mercilessly. So I, I would always urge people to figure out what is your intention first and foremost. And if if you are coming from it from a pure perspective of intention, of like a curiosity of, of growth. Like I want to see, Hey, can, is this a challenge I can overcome? I'm like, okay, that's yeah. a great reason. Is, is it an intellectual curiosity? But if, if it's like, Oh, I want to put this on my resume or I want to impress this person, or I, I feel like it's, you know, the, the cool thing to do, then you're better off, you know, finding something else that's going to be less, less painful because starting a company and actually going in uh, takes a lot out of you. And yeah. there's, it's, it's, it's like running a series of, of sprints for years and <laughs> most companies fail. So if, if you're yeah. not comfortable with, with, you know, the prize being self-exploration and learning, right. recognizing that there might not be a financial payout, then I would say, don't even start the thing. So <clears throat> when it comes to a checklist though, I, I think there are some basic things that, that people should keep in mind if they do want to start a company. Um, particularly in the hardware space, if you're technical, uh, make sure that it's it's feasible to be for this thing to build to be built, right? Sounds like important. if you have an idea, <laughs> right? No, no. But seriously, if, if if you want to create like a wormhole generator to teleport things around, it's like <laughs> figure not. out at least theoretically how it could be done, right? right. Like yeah. like how about yeah. that for step one yeah. instead of like going around and being like you know telling venture capitalists why they're stupid for not investing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Richard <laughs> you know? Hamming says you have to have an attack. You know, you have to have an attack. Yes. On the problem. Absolutely. You attack, absolutely. You shouldn't do it. <laughs> for sure. No doubt. I, I completely agree with that. And, and I think this is especially true for technical people. Um, and if, if you're not technical, get technical enough that you can talk to someone who could help you identify that attack. So as an example, if, if I wanted to write, if I wanted to do a piece of software, which is not, you know, my uh, zone of genius, then I would, if I was really passionate about this idea, watch enough YouTube videos that I could use some kind of crappy Python or no code tool to put this thing together in such a way that I could get at least something out there that I could show someone else or describe to someone who might be able to interpret what I'm trying to do. Gotcha. Right. And so with code, it's really easy for you to cobble together these Frankenstein styles experiments yeah. because the cost of experimentation is so low. It's literally just a computer and internet connection. And in some cases you don't even need an internet connection. Um, whereas in the hardware space, I, I think because the cost of experimenting is so much more prohibitive for iteration. So like, like let, let's take a, a random example. If you wanted to make a new water purifier, let's say, um, that's going to cost you more than an internet connection and, and a computer. Yeah. It, it might cost you like a few grand in, in parts, uh, materials, actually going and having a space where you could do the, the mechanical, the chemical, electrical engineering to do the water yeah. filtration. Um, I would consider first maybe if there's a need 
for this thing before you go out and you build it. There are some cases, right? There's always exceptions to the rules. So um, a friend of mine named, uh, I, actually, I, I, don't, I don't know if, if he'd want me telling the story. So, I, so a friend of mine, a friend. <laughs> yes, um, was working on uh, a protein detection um, device where basically you could detect uh, the presence of a certain biological material in a sample. And it turns out that uh, midway through them going through building this, COVID came and hit. And they thought, well, we can sense biological material. Let's build a COVID test yeah, uh, to sense and help COVID. Yeah, absolutely. Make, brilliant. They started working on it. Um, they got some funding for this and, you know, iterated, iterated, iterated. And one day they kind of picked their heads up. And they go like, wait a second, hold on. Shouldn't we try to see if we can sell this, you know, try to do some pre-sales yeah. because like, maybe, maybe like, what's the point of this? And so they go to their advisor and their advisor is like, what are you stupid? Like go prove that you can even do this. Go build the thing. It's COVID. Of course we right, need right. COVID tests. Yeah. Like, like the market is so obviously in need exactly. of what you're doing. Exactly. Like stop second thinking this, go prove you can test COVID. And they're like, Oh, okay. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah, so they right, walked right. back in the lab and continued <laughs> to execute, you know, a few weeks later, boom, they had a COVID test. And so, so, you know, there are some, some cases where you don't need to follow that logic, where right. just build the thing, prove that it can be done. Yeah. But usually, generally in the hardware space, like you kind of want to prove that people will use or need or want to buy the thing before you spend thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars and inevitably millions yeah. um, in order to get a product to market. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, it, it does seem to be this thing where like, yeah, you know, if you can make someone live twice as long, of course, everybody's going to buy that. But you know, mm -hmm. like in software, it, it, it seems like software lends itself to this problem where, you know, you build something no one wants a lot more. And, and, and deep tech has, has less of those challenges, but it, it's something you should probably still at least think through. Take 10 minutes and call somebody and see if they buy it, you know, worth yeah. doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's very insightful. I, I'll add to that by saying that deep tech does generally have the benefit of products being more market, let's say, needed or driven, uh, but not by an absolute measure. So it's not right. like 100% of deep tech companies yeah. or products, right? Like I've done two of them where it was like, oh, does the market really need cheaper solar panels? It, it turns out that that if you look at the economics of solar, what we could yeah. use is actually uh, more efficient solar panels. So higher price, but higher performance. And we're going for the inverse, uh, lowest possible cost, uh, willing to sacrifice on performance to get ultra low cost. So it turns out we were optimizing in the complete inverse direction as was needed by the market. Um, the other thing that I'll say that, that you know, having worked in software a little bit, I'll say is, is frustrating is you can like, you can absolutely spend thousands of hours crafting and honing and tuning your landing page and your website and, and this button where it leads, yeah. um, how, how a person uses your app. Is it satisfying? Is it not all these different factors? And then when you put it in front of someone, they could just shrug and be like, eh, I don't need it. Like, uh, yeah. Because at the end of the day, you're competing against people's desire to use Facebook or yeah. Instagram or Twitter or YouTube or what have you. And just the same way, you know, Netflix competes with sleep you're competing with a bunch of other people's priorities. So especially in the space of software, get in front of people as quickly as you possibly can. And all of that building and iterating you're doing in private is actually often a waste. Again, there's exceptions to every rule. Right. Just yeah, my two cents. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, you know, 
this is kind of a left-hand turn, but I, I, I'm quite sure. curious about it. You know, the macro yeah. environment seems to really lend itself to deep tech problems at the moment. You know, like capital is very cheap. Um, you know, uh, is that really the case? Is it easier than it has been in the past to get these things started? So it's tricky because great businesses will always be in demand regardless of what the economy looks like. Gotcha. If, if we're in a session, if we're in a recession, I should say, an economic boom, it doesn't matter. Uh, great companies are always going to get funded regardless. So if, if you're showing that you're growing, you know, 500% year after year, no one cares. They're just going to give you money. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't matter. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter. Uh, it's, it's just how it is. Yeah. That's just how it is. Um, on the other hand, there is something to be said about how cheaper cost of capital because of the macro forces in more people wanting to get into venture capital has yeah. made it easier for companies that need to raise many millions of dollars to do it at a, at a rate that is acceptable to their dilution. Right. So a, a different way to think about this is basically how much of my company do I have to give away to hit the next big milestone? Got it. And based on what the funding environment looks like, that amount of capital that you'll get for giving away a set, say 10% or 20% of your company looks different based on the macro environments. So as, as an example, if, if it takes you $10 million to build your first prototype, well, you could kind of reasonably show how if you had a, like a bulletproof team, really good prototype designs, or, or sorry, even blueprint designs, yeah. and then you know some MATLAB simulation that shows how you would make this thing, if it's a fusion reactor, let's say, yeah. then you could reasonably see how you could raise in this macro environment, you could give away 20% of your company for that 10 mil. That seems within the realm of possibility. Whereas a decade ago, that wasn't the case. Gotcha. I think Stripe raised, they gave away some absurd, it was, I'm definitely going to get this wrong. So someone please, you know, fact check me here, but it was like 10, actually looking at the Y Combinator deal might be a, a better factor there. YC used to give out like 20K for their 7%. Oh and so it's it's ballooned 5X, right? Wow. They still take the same equity. And so it, like even that, wow. the, for, for the same percentage of your company that you're selling, you get way more capital. So what that allows you to do basically is say, okay, if we assemble the top tier talent, if we have a great attack vector, as, as yeah. you were saying earlier, then because of the market dynamics, we can afford to tackle bigger problems at an earlier and earlier stage. Now, two interesting market dynamics with that. I think the first is the government is usually the one that tries to bridge the gap between something being venture fundable and just completely uh, in laboratory research. Like the grants, like the, yeah. <laughs> like, like, you know, it, it's like, we're going to do this four years. It's going to be super expensive. Like no one else can fund this. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it was the same thing with the Apollo program, but now private companies are going to space. Yeah. Why? Because it's, it's a reasonable, you can accumulate a reasonable amount of capital on this macro environment to spend on de-risking the parts of getting to space. So that, that that's one factor. So, so it's, it's, you know, SBIR grants, it's, it's government grants, uh, NSF, so on and so forth. Um, then the other factor is because more and more investors are trying to capture this, this pie of venture returns. They're going earlier and earlier and earlier into the stack. So normally you would see this, you can raise a $10 million round. That would typically be a series A. Yeah. And now some companies are raising that in their seed round. I, I've got another friend who raised an $8 million seed. 
Wow. And that's, yeah, I, I, absolutely unheard of. We're like absolutely ridiculous. And it's, it's just enabling more companies than ever before. So I, I think we're at a, a great place to do these really hard, really uh, economically inefficient and, yeah. and deeply uh, resource intensive projects nowadays because of the, the venture model, but also because uh, software is starting to show that it is easily um, or it can't easily be defended. So Notion is actually being competed against by Microsoft who just launched a Notion clone this month. Oh, really? So you're, you're yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right? Whereas it's very tough for someone to try and copy what SpaceX is doing. You can't just like grab their rocket out and say like, oh, how is this thing constructed? Let me just copy that. Right, right. But you can just play around with a software piece continually and, and get that clone. So yeah. it, the differentiation, it becomes really difficult. It's the same thing, I think, with Microsoft Teams, where I think there's now more Microsoft Teams users than there are uh, Slack users because oh, wow. of the distribution through Microsoft. So Slack was kind of pressured to work with and be acquired by Salesforce in order to keep themselves relevant in this in this sphere in this ecosystem so yeah it, it's a multitude of factors that are coming together to enable now more than ever some of these big projects and the last thing i'll say is it's never been a better time to be a founder it's never been easier to raise capital there have never been more people who are excited to build and work on startups and the i don't know how long this environment will last i don't, I don't think that it'll be this way you know in, indefinitely like everything there's a boom bust cycle right. so we don't know where you know the economy might decide to tank in two or three years and right, so right. therefore the ease of raising will and remember as long as you're the next airbnb or facebook you'll or tesla yeah you'll be able to raise no matter what but if, if you're a first-time founder you're just you know trying it out and whatnot it might yeah. be a little harder but right now is a brilliant brilliant time so will if you have any ideas it's that you've time. been thinking about starting yeah get in there get in the ringer my man it's time what are you doing? Yeah, exactly. No, th th that's super interesting. That's super interesting. I, I, I'm curious if you think. I, I definitely agree that you know recessions come. You know things they 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 they, they return. But it almost seems like it. This is this is a trend that will continue as everyone searches for yield. You know, like you're you're looking for yield. Like you you have to push farther down the risk continuum to get more reward now. You know, because like negative interest rates and things like that. Sure. Do you think this yeah, will be and like, stimulus? somewhat you know this this elevated place we're at will continue longer than people realize perhaps i don't know that's a weird pet theory i have well that, that depends so, so why don't you put a boundary on what uh people think right well, why don't you be the the average person and then i'll try to contrast and respond to that what do you think the average person anticipates gotcha i don't i see uh you know joe lonesdale lonesdale is that his name on on twitter talking to delian is that his name? I, I can't pronounce it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I only the, read the, the it. two right. shit posters. Exactly. And Joe's like, yeah. you know, be careful with Varda because, you know, you, know, you won't be able to raise this way forever. You know, recession's coming very, very soon. And how soon is very okay. soon? I don't know. The next couple, three years, let's say. Time sure, boxing like sure. that. Um, yeah, yeah, but but I I do wonder if this is like a, it's a you know things may revert a little bit, but we are at a more heightened stage as more more and more fun more and more eyes are on venture. Venture used to be weird, you know, it used to be this weird thing, and now it seems like a lot more people are in it. Absolutely, I I think the question in there was, do we think that in three years, if there is a theoretical recession, yeah. uh, that it will like shatter the ability like for people for to exactly. Yeah, yeah, I don't think so. Because 
So, so history isn't a good predictor of the future. Yeah. Um, we know that history generally rhymes, but if you looked at what happened in the dot-com bubble, which I, you know, I wasn't an investor back then. I was got a, a kid, a toddler, nice. um, but nevertheless, uh, you, you saw a lot of internet companies get hyped completely to the moon. Right. And then the stock market basically collapsed for those internet companies. And if you maintained your holdings, then you would have maintained holdings in uh, Apple and in, I want to say, Amazon. And so it, it turns out that those two were incredible companies to have yeah. bought and hold, like enough. both at the upset, uh, like as it was ramping up at the peak and then at the bottom at the crash of that period. So it's definitely not going to go back down to zero because our need for it as a society, the, the, the necessity is the mother of innovation and invention. And we need more solutions to, to problems today than we've ever had before. We have more complicated, nuanced issues than ever. So even if you just tackle one simple thing like climate change, anytime anyone has a new idea for what they can do to work against climate change, whether it's a new way of generating energy or a new way of pulling carbon out of the atmosphere or a new way of growing trees or food or what have you, yeah. the most efficient path to getting that project into the commercial space, generating revenue and actually achieving its mission right. is through the, the juice, the acceleration, the boost of capital. It takes money to make money. That's a pretty common phrase in business. So there will always be people that are risk tolerant, that, that understand that 80% of the things that they will invest in will go to zero, but believe that they'll find the 20% of things that will be the next Google, the next Tesla, so on and so forth. So it'll never go away because our need to solve problems will never go away. But the ability to which folks who are not Elon Musk level can raise capital their ability to exist and not exist is is transient the with that's the state the of the economy. Exactly, that makes exactly. a lot of sense. I, I really like that. I think that's that's a great that's a great way to put it. Um, James, where do you come down on the the tech stagnation thesis? And uh, mm. I, I'm really curious on your opinion because you know you're mm. right on top of these things. You know, do you feel that innovation is uh, in the real world is is continuing? You know, it, it's going pretty well at this point, or is it going like okay? And I. I I don't know. What, what do you think about that? Yeah. So I, I uh, we've had so much success up until this point that I feel like a lot of people are taking it for granted. Software has been the biggest accelerating force we've experienced in the past two decades. So the, the incredible utility that's been brought to us by Amazon, Facebook, Meta slash Google, um, and so on and so forth has been staggering. And, and we use... I, I use their products multiple times a day. Whereas if you compare that to the obvious stresses of things like a crumbling infrastructure, yeah. it's, it's easy to say like, hey, every year we get a new and better iPhone. How come we're not getting better railroads and power lines and uh, cargo freight ships right. every year? And the, the reality of it is the two of those have a different competing uh, interest in terms of like public allocation, in terms of public facing brands. And generally I, I like the, the Tim, what's his name? Uh, Tim Urban has a, a blog called Wait But Why. Yeah, that's and great. He, ha he has 
it, it, a brilliant really blog. If, if you guys, yeah, 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 yeah. phenomenal. He, 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 he's a brilliant, brilliant essay, essayist um, who has this concept of the human megalith, of the human monolith, uh, where basically he, he posits or he, he positions that whatever, because society has so much capacity, we have so much ability, whatever we organize to tackle, we generally overcome. And, and that's true. I, I think that allocation of problems that we address is often reflected by where the, the mimetic interest is in society. And I think reasonably it follows in a place where you get rewards reasonably easily in proportion to the energy that you put in. And that Got makes it. sense, right? As yeah. human beings, we're naturally driven to seek out reward. We have a very robust dopaminergic cycle that's evolved over hundreds of millions of years to give us this ability to seek, experiment, and then be rewarded from said experiments. And as we now see with social media, that can be engineered in a way to make things extraordinarily engaging and in some cases addicting. And in places like software, the ability to get feedback, and you're seeing that especially in crypto, for an idea that's been put out there, it comes on the order of seconds. Whereas <clears throat> building a new port, let's say, or new power lines takes, unfortunately, years, exactly. if not decades. So, so the, the speed of the rewards uh, center of the brain is far more stimulated by these fast turnaround areas. Right. And so I think that's where we see a lot more activity easily. Now, th there's this <laughs> counterbalance of saying, well, at a certain point, if we can't um, build new roads and we can't get new uh, power lines that are sent, what are we going to do as, as a country? Right. My, right? Like my this take on that important. is... Yeah, yeah, it, it is. It is. So, so the, the way you kind of balance that out is is typically if it's done, um, I don't want to say correctly, but through through the capital mechanisms that we have here in the U.S., the market will figure out what the right rate for that is. So it'll be that you get compensated instead of like by you know your dopamine being triggered from ooh like people like this post, so right. I got like a thousand likes. This is exciting. Instead, it'll be like wow, there's a bounty for a multi-billion-dollar project for me to like Let's go build that. this thing. Yeah. Like okay, yeah, I, I kind of want that multi-billion-dollar reward. And so I, I think the incentives naturally tease their way out economically. That makes sense. Now the, the other the thing that that I'll say that I do agree with. Um, there's a lot of people that comment on on uh, stack. Stagnation. I yeah. think in the realm of physics, we've seen a lot of physics be stagnant in the fact that like the last useful piece of physics that we saw com commercialized was like nuclear and semiconductors. Yeah. And like, we haven't really been able to do a lot of useful commercial level um, physics with what's being done at the cutting edge these days. Like, you know, we, we understand the Higgs boson exists now. We understand about gravitational waves, but we can't really do can't much with transfer. the... Yeah, yeah. Th there, there's no real... Uh, use or utility to those technologies. So I will admit that there are some places where it feels like potentially we may have mined through the low hanging fruit. Yeah. Um, but we're seeing that software is able to restructure a lot of information that we maybe took for granted or we didn't realize was useful. So 
one thing that I really like uh, that I'm seeing is companies that are building new fusion reactors modeled entirely from really great physics simulation through software to say, actually, there's new ways we can try to make fusion work, right? Helping, getting a helping hand from, yeah. from algorithms. And so I imagine that when we have like truly hardcore, like GDP six, Right, but like for for academia, for chemistry, yeah. for physics, for um, I mean, you see this already in biology. Like GTP three, it turns out for bio is already good enough, but it, you know we'll need a GTP five for chemistry and probably GTP six or eight for physics. But I anticipate that we'll start to see a bit of a renaissance just by kind of mining some of this old data that hasn't necessarily been leveraged yet. Uh, however, I think that there is a certain level of um, utility that comes in working from different levels of abstraction away from, let's say the atomic scale. So like, why is biology as an example, such a booming field? Yeah. Well, it turns out that biology is just such a relevant part of our lives and biology is built up of chemistry, which is built up of physics. So it's two levels abstracted away from like what we would consider the fundamentals. Yeah. And so it's very close to uh, the ability to be actuated. And so there's so much in, in biology that is leverageable, that is manipulable, um, that we have the ability to, uh, leverage and utilize. But if, if you, as, as a person were sick and I was like, Oh, Hey, you know, I've got this really great way to detect black holes in a uh, distant, <laughs> you know, galaxy. You're just like, I don't, don't compute. Really like, like why, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Why is this useful? I guess Not I'm now. kind of inspired. <laughs> Not now. <laughs> Later, James. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Exactly. So I, I, I think that there's going to be more innovation. I think it, just like anything else, just like a human attention, we're seeing flow in different directions. Yeah. And I, I think, uh, once again, going back to Elon, he did a great job proving that really hard technical things can be done still possible. by a, exactly, by a coordinated, uh, motivated group of people. And that has given, it gave me the faith to start my companies. And it's, it's shown that we aren't done innovating in the world of atoms. That, that's really good. And th I love that point, you know, knowing that it, you know, having some kind of model and, and seeing that it's possible, it, it seems yes. really important. And, and this segues into the kind of, kind of my last big question here as we, we run, up, run up on our time here. Um, you know, the fellowship, you know, how has it been? Yeah. And, and uh, you know, could you pitch it to us and where can people find it? <laughs> sure. So uh, we're talking about the On Deck Deep Tech Fellowship. Um, which I'm one of the co-founders and the program partner there. Abhijit is the program director. And we are creating a, a playground for people who are deeply technical and who are interested in building, joining, and accelerating the careers in the deep tech space. So this is for, for founders who want access to potential hires. So we have a person that, that actually managed to hire uh I want to say three people from the oh, deep cool. tech fellowship already. Nice. Um, we've gotten people uh, jobs at, at companies they would have never had access to. Um, founders have been fundraising. Uh, we've been able to make customer intros. We're having you know sessions about how to apply for government grants, how to think about intellectual property. We have mastermind groups where you get to nerd out with other people in your same space, right? So if, if you're a biotech founder thinking about how to use AI to understand uh, potential uh, biologics for disease. We can introduce you to other people who are also doing the same thing, but thinking about it from an entrepreneurial perspective, as opposed to an academic, how do I get papers out of the door perspective? Um, it, it's just a brilliant melting pot of people who all have the same desire to make a, a massive impact in the, the deep tech space. And 
I'm just so grateful to be a part of building this community. So you can find it on uh, beondeck.com slash deep tech. Uh, we also have Twitter. Um, so we have a, yeah, Beyond Deck is the Twitter handle. Uh, I'm at James Sinka, uh, two S's, J-A-M-E-S-S-I-N-K-A. And yeah, if, if you're trying to innovate in the world of atoms and you want to surround yourself with other people who are curious, who are passionate, who are like-minded and, and have a, a startup edge, you don't necessarily have to want to start a company. You can want to be an early uh, joiner or an explorer or, or help even if you're someone that's seasoned, that's, that's built companies in different ecosystems, but you want to help other folks navigate their way. Maybe you're someone that's worked at a, at a big software company um, that wants to help someone who's working in biotech figure out how they can leverage modern software off the shelf tools or even um, AI like GTP3 for some of these biological computations. Uh, we'd, we'd love to have you. So I, I, the, the fellowship has been great. I love it. <laughs> it's really cool. It's really cool. I highly recommend everyone apply. Do you know when the next cycle is by any chance for, for folks yes. so, listening? Uh, yep. Yep. We're going to open up the next set of cycles in Q1 of next year. Uh, we're working out on when the right time is to bring everyone into a position where uh, we're ready to handle all the inbound. We saw, we have people actually right now, if you want to apply, we have a wait list and we, we get um, applications on our wait list already. So you don't have to necessarily wait, but the next cohort will start. We're thinking February, March time. Nice. Nice. Yep. Super cool. Super cool. Well, well, James, thank you so much for coming on. I, I learned a ton from you today. Um, and uh, so where can people find you? I think you mentioned your Twitter handle. Is that a good place to find yes. you personally? Yes. So I'm, I'm at James Sinka on Twitter and I've also got a website. It's J-A-M-E-S-S-I-N-K-A.com. It'll just be the same thing for all of my socials, right? Um, but yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Well, this was entertaining. Thanks, James. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives.